So beginning uh, September the 4th on that Labor Day weekend, I'm going to begin a series called Search. And this series is going to be about biblical answers, finding biblical answers to life's biggest questions. And I know that all of you will have these big questions from time to time in life. And, and you know, Jesus loved questions. He loved when people asked him questions and he loved when people, uh, uh, he loved to give answers to questions. And he even used questions a lot. In fact, we're going to hear him ask one of the most important questions he ever asked, if not the most important question. He said to Peter, who do you say that I am? That's a big question. And we're going to talk about that today, but here's what we want to do. In this series, I'd like to hear from you. Uh, I have put above a phone number here, and this phone number goes to a, you can text this phone number, 352-559-3523. That's Daniel Morris's personal cell phone number, (laughs) and uh, that goes directly to him. But what I'd love for you to do is text your question. Or several questions, and, and maybe even set it in your in context. But if you've got something on your heart or mind, I want to craft those into this series of eight big questions. Now, I have some questions in mind, but I want to hear from you. And then what we're going to do is when I answer that question on Sunday morning, uh, and, and I know I'm going to answer on September 11th, and you know what happened on September 11th. I'm going to answer the question from the biblical perspective. perspective why do bad things happen to good people? That's a big question. And we're going we're gonna to reflect even on what happened in, at, at 9-11 and ask, where was God in that? And, and, and talk about questions like that. So write this number down. And over the next couple of weeks, as you are just struggling with questions, send them to me. And uh, you don't have to sign them or anything. I'm not going to give credit to the questions or, or blame or anything like that. Uh, but I want to know where you at, where you are, where you are in your walk with the Lord and how I can best answer those questions. So I'm excited about this new series called search, say search. Sorry. So we're on, on board. Well, what we're doing this morning is we're finishing up a two part series called making it missional. Last week we looked at Jesus come to his disciples who were locked away in the upper room after, uh, the, the crucifixion in fear of the Jews. And he made an appearance and remember he gave them a promise He gave them the proof of uh, his resurrection. And then he said, now, I need you to unlock the doors and I need you to go. And and we talked about the fact that sometimes prayer for us can be spiritual procrastination. There's a time where we have to get up off our knees and we need to go. The world calls us to go. And so we've been encouraging our life groups to, to, to be missional. And we saw last week the beginnings of how Jesus turned a classroom, and really that was a classroom, his classroom of friends, he turned them into a community on mission. And that's what we want our life groups to be, that's what we want our church to be. We want us not just to be a class that I come and give a message to, and then you break into smaller classes, we're supposed to be much more than a classroom of friends. We're to be community on mission. And so we're going to continue that story today. And, and we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 16. And so you can turn there and we're going to, we're going to walk through this story and I only have a brief amount of time this morning. So I hope you'll bear with me as I kind of move quickly through this, but we're going to see Jesus continue to try to turn this group of disciples. And they were like a classroom. He was a rabbi. They were his disciples. He was continually teaching them. But at times there were turning point moments. This is a turning point moment in Matthew chapter 16 where he asks 
an amazing question. He looks and he says, who do these people say that I am? And they give all the answers. They say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah. And then he turns and he looks at these guys and he says, now this is going to be the critical turning point. Who do you say that I am? And you may remember that Peter jumped right out and he said what? He said, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus celebrated that confession of faith with this statement. He said, I tell you, you are Peter. And that is a masculine form of the word for rock or pebble. And then, and he said, and on this rock, which was now in a feminine, uh, the feminine uh, form, he says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And this is the first time he uses the word church, ecclesia. I'm going to build those. I'm going to call out a group of people I'm going to call them out and I'm going to build it upon this rock. And there's all sorts of cool debates about what rock he was talking about. Was it Peter? Was it the confession? Was he, was he even pointing to himself? Jesus certainly was the rock of our salvation. Or was he pointing to something else? Well, we're going to look at the context today and, and I hope it will, we'll learn some things about how you and I need to be on mission. We need to be missional in, a life, in our lifestyle in order to fulfill this incredible promise. He says, I'm gonna build my church, but I'm gonna build it through people on mission. And so we're gonna follow along as Jesus opens up this statement. You know, everybody's on a mission. You know, I've got a mission of pastoring this church uh, Dr. Fox has a mission. He's got a mission of leading UF. You may have a mission. And then we've got, we've got those vocational missions. And then we've got just personal missions. We've got missions where maybe it's to be financially free so you can retire and fish for 20 years. And I don't know what your mission is. Maybe your mission is just to raise good children. Maybe your mission in life is to, uh, uh, to own a new car or, or to, to get that great job. Or maybe you're a, in the medical field. Your mission is just to heal as many people as you possibly can. Or maybe it's to run for political office. We need to talk. And, uh, but anyway, we have little missions. We have big missions. Our lives, you, can't, you really have a mission whether you think you've got a mission or not. The question of this series is, do you have the right mission? Because if you have the right mission as a follower of Christ, then all of our little missions fit within that. And so he is, he's going to call the disciples to the mission today. And he's going to do it in a unique way. And he takes them to a unique place out into um, uh, a part of the, the country called, make sure I get this right. He takes them out into a part of the country called Caesarea Philippi. Let's join him there in this passage of scripture. Now, when Jesus came into the district of, the Caesarea, of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, what's interesting is that he had just spent some time in Bethsaida, Capernaum. And there he was being hassled by a lot of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were constantly criticizing the message and his approach to ministry. 
And he decided, I'm gonna have this very intense conversation about the mission with my disciples. I'm gonna walk 32 miles out of the way to do this. So he walks 32 miles, that's a long walk, folks, and he takes his disciples out to a retreat area where they had built this city. And this city was called Caesarea Philippi, and you know from the name, it's a Roman city, and this city was full of paganism. We could call this the Las Vegas, you know, or maybe that's not even a good, a good comparison. It, it was Sin City. And they had this grotto, they had this place of temple worship, idol worship, right there at the, near that city called the Grotto of Pan. And this was, or as it's called now, Panius. And this was a place of great idolatrous, immoral worship of all different kinds, I mean, I was embarrassed even looking through some of the the drawings of the worship that used to occur in some of these places. And and Jesus took them out to a Gentile pagan area and I think was right near this rock when he gave his question and when Peter answered his question. Now, why did he take him out there? Well, there's some things I want us to, to understand. I think to be on mission, to be on mission Jesus, Jesus knows that we need to see the problem. We need to see the problem. And he took, he took his disciples and they had seen the problem in Judea and in Galilee. The problem there was Pharisaic legalism. It was religion gone bad in, in the heart of Judea. And now he takes them out to the Gentile world, out into the pastures, out into this place of idol worship, and he says, I want you to see the problem. Let's diagnose it. He diagnosed it with a question. He said, what are they saying? What are the common people saying about who I am? Let me ask you this question. What does Gainesville say? How how does Gainesville answer this question? Who's Jesus to Gainesville? Who's Jesus to America? Who's Jesus to your neighbor?" And so he takes them and he says, you need to see and comprehend the problem. Because if you don't understand the problem in its great depth, you're not going to be motivated for the mission. And so three things, we're going to see the problem, we're going to see the people, and then he's going he's to show us the path. There's a problem we must see, there's a people we must be. Because he diagnoses the problem, then he sends a people to help with the problem. And then he says there's a path that you're gonna have to take. And so hopefully we'll get to some of this today. But when you come to Panius, when you come to this area, um, and, and I've taken a couple of groups there in Israel. Some of you may have been there. It's a fascinating place. And, and this, this is the uh, cave. And this cave is, they called them grottos. And caves were in the wilderness were often places where they worshiped a god called Pan. And Pan, if you remember that God, has the, has the upper body of a man, and then he's a, got a horned head. And in fact, Satanism has sort of captured the horned God as their symbol of Satan. And then he has the lower body of a goat. So he's half animal, half man. And that just gives you an idea of the type of uh, Greek God that Pan was very heathenistic, very sensual, and all sorts of things. And they would go and worship in these areas. And um, that's a little bit of a closer 
closer view. And you can go over there and check this place out and, uh, and see what it is like. And what's interesting coming out, uh, it used to flow out of the mouth of this cave, but now after an earthquake hundreds of years ago, uh, the water flows out of the ground. This is the very source, part of the key source of the Jordan River, which flows into the Sea of Galilee. The headwaters of the Jordan River flow right out from under this, this cave where they had all of this idolatrous worship. Now, what did that look like when Jesus took the disciples there? Well, here is a drawing. This was a drawing. It would have been a, a little later drawing after the time of Jesus, but some of these buildings may have been there during his time. But the worship, the pagan heathen worship was there. And he takes his disciples and he says, I'm gonna ask you a question about what you believe about me, and I'm gonna ask you to, to see the problem, and then I'm gonna give you a reason to go on mission. But this is an artist's rendering, and I wanted to walk through what the problem is. Because you'll see the problem there hasn't, it's the same today as it was then. This first temple right here on my left is a temple in honor of Augustus Caesar. And it was placed right in front of the mouth of that cave. And, and Caesar worship was, was common in that day. And then you have this next little uh, alley here that led up to another another idol, and they would have statues and idols. And this was a little, a little alley where you would go in and you would worship the god Pan. And I already mentioned what the god Pan was like. And then le- years later, they built this huge uh, uh, cathedral, this huge temple in front of another area, and this was in honor of Zeus. Now, if you remember who Zeus was, Zeus was the, they called him the king of heaven. They actually referred to him as father because he was the chief of all the gods of the pantheon. And so this was, a, this was an important uh, religious place. And then this is interesting. This next little alley right here led up to an idol that was behind uh, bars. And this, this place was called uh, a, a place to worship Nemesis. Nemesis. Now, Nemesis was the god of divine retribution. It was the God that uh, the soldiers would go and worship. It was a place they would go and hopefully uh, this God you would worship that they would make things even in life. You do good things, this God's gonna make sure other people do good things for you. You do bad things, this God makes sure you get bad things in return. And then this is interesting, you can kind of see they tried to depict in the little courtyard here there is up in the right-hand corner a tomb and then a, a, an area uh, where they dance. This was called the Cult of the Dancing Goats. Kind of an interesting place. The Cult of the Dancing Goats. Now, this is a place you cannot imagine what it must have been like to go in, in their heyday. A lot of the worship would occur at night and, and different places. They would come with lamps. They would come with food. They would offer sacrifices. And one of the key sacrifices that they would offer is they would, uh, they would kill uh, uh, goats, male goats, and then they would cast them into the grotto. And the grotto was full of this uh, quantity of water that was pouring out, and it would come out from under this, uh, uh, this, this temple to Caesar. And, and, and the idea was, I will throw this goat in, and it sinks, and there was, they could not find the bottom. To them, it was a bottomless pit of water. And what's interesting is they had a name for this bottomless pit, They called it the gates of Hades. 
And so Jesus brings his disciples and he says, he brings them to a place of great immorality, a great a place of great idolatry and a place where they believed. And they believed the gate of Hades was, was where the dead were. And so uh, when he said the gates of Hades, he was talking about the authority of death. Nobody could overcome death. And Jesus brings them to, the, to a place where they could vividly see, here's the problem. They're worshiping Caesar. They're worshiping Pan. They're worshiping Zeus. They're worshiping Nemesis. They're dancing with the cult of the dancing goats. But none of these uh, uh, idolatries and none of these worship, uh, none of these acts of worship could do anything to stop the gates of hell. None of them could deal with the problem. The problem is sin and its result, which is death. You know, it's interesting, as I begin to reflect on these various cults, in a sense, we're still bowing to these same deities. These deities haven't gone away, they're just kind of taking different forms. Because apart from Christ, people are trying to find hope for the big problem. People are searching for pleasure and they are, they're seeking it, trying to dance with the goats and, and worship the, the pagan god of Pan who was the god of the forest and shepherds and who was terribly immoral and, and it was a very lust-filled religion. They were seeking for pleasure. Everybody wants pleasure. Everybody wants peace. Everybody wants happiness. And ultimately, they're searching for the answer to our biggest problem. We all die. And it has an authority over every one of us. Death and sin. And so even, and so this place got a name. They called it the Rock of the Gods. Kind of interesting, huh? The Rock of the Gods. Well, even in our day and time, the gods of our culture can take the same basic form. A lot of folks are putting their hope in government. We're just bowing to Caesar, hoping Caesar can can fix us. It's a different type of Caesar and it's different across our planet, but people are hoping that some type of humanism, some type of, uh, of government, that uh, there'll be a political so- solution. Well, I think we, we, we ought to work hard for political solutions and be a part of that, but no political solution can fix our biggest problems. Amen. You can look and you know, there are people who are worshiping nature. If we'll just take care of the planet, the planet will take care of us. And I believe absolutely we ought to take good care of our planet. But the planet cannot take care of our biggest problem, sin and death. There are people who are are, are practicing all sorts of false religions. They're going to whatever, whatever God they think is the highest and they're appealing to false gods all around the world. And, 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 and then we even have folks that are in, in Christian churches who are practicing a false religion because they're basically just bringing the sacrifice of their good works and they're hoping if they'll just do lots of good works, God will accept them. It, it is akin to this pagan sacrifice that you should go and make enough sacrifices, Zeus will let you in. False religion can't deal with our issue. Then there are those who are kind of rolling the dice with karma. They're just hoping if I am good enough, I'll just be good to people and then God will kind of send it back to me. And if, if I do enough bad stuff, the bad stuff's gonna come our way. And they're kind of living life based on this, this idea of karma. The karma cannot cover 
our sin. It can't help us with death. And then not much has changed. The dancing goats are still money and sex and the pursuit of possessions and pleasure. Do you all see the problem? It's interesting that the word panic came from the god Pan. And, and panic was something that would happen to the soldiers, but it would also happen in the immoral worship that just this, this uh, wild emotion would take over. And people could just be fleshly free and do whatever they want to do. And that, that's why Pan was such a favorite among the people. And we see just all sorts of worship going on around us. And Jesus comes and says, I'm going to build a church. And I'm going to build it on the rock. Now, what rock is he building it on? Was he talking about this rock, the rock of the gods? Was he talking about Peter? Peter and his confession? Well, that's the problem. That's the problem we must see if we're going to be missional people. You've got to see that problem. But look what Jesus says that he's called us to do. He's called us to be a people. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, he says, here's how we're going to deal with this. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, I would have been really excited at the point where Jesus says, I'm going to build a church and I'm going to build it on the confession. I'm going to build it on Peter. I'm going to build it on that rock. I'm going to overcome all of that. And I'm going to build it on people like you, Peter, people who just profess Christ. I'm going to build this great church. And then Jesus, right after he gives this wonderful, inspirational story, he turns around and says, and this is the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. What? I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And I'm going to be resurrected on the third day. Now, here's what's interesting about this moment for me. Is I don't think that the disciples at that point probably got what he was saying. But on this side of the resurrection, on this side of the crucifixion with us, I think the story kind of comes together. Jesus says, this is how I'm going to defeat the authority of death. I'm going to cast myself into the wrath of God. I'm going to cast myself basically into Hades. You know, it's interesting about the, the cult religion, the pan there is they would, they would cast that goat uh, bleeding into that uh, deep, uh, bottomless well of water. And here's how they knew that it was accepted. If any blood flowed out of the river, they would go downstream. If they started, saw some of the blood come out of the river, it would, it would, it would be a sign that they, the God did not accept the sacrifice. But if the blood stayed, if no blood showed up, they said, hey, God accepted our sacrifice. Here's what Jesus did. He went into the mouth of the cave. 
He descended into the depths of Hades and he walked out. He walked out. He broke the authority of sin and death. You see, all of these other religions couldn't do that. There was not a sacrifice of a bull. There was not a sacrifice of a goat. There was not any kind of sacrifice that any of us could do to ever atone for our sin. It took the Son of God taking on the sins of the world, becoming the sacrifice. And if he had stayed in the grave, the depths and the gates of hell would still have their authority over us. But he broke loose. Amen? He broke loose. Leviticus has an interesting story. In Leviticus chapter 16, it's describing the Old Testament sacrificial system. And this just jumped all over me. And, and they're describing how it was supposed to be done. And in verse 20, it says, And when he had made an, an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Now, what's interesting is the Old Testament priest in the Old Testament would present two goats. One he would kill and take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and sprinkle it in the holy place. And he would atone for the sins behind the tent and cover for people's sins. But then they had a second goat and Aaron would come and lay his hands on this goat. And you know what they called that goat? The scapegoat. And then they'd run him off into the wilderness. But listen to what Leviticus says. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Jesus became that sacrificial goat for us. He became that sacrificial lamb. He became the scapegoat. All of the sins of humanity, all of your sins and my sins were placed upon his head and he died for our sins and then he took them away. And it just was beautifully visualized here that as far as the east is from the west, our Savior, the great sacrifice, took our sins away. Isaiah was getting at that in verse chapter 53 when he said, surely Jesus, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, we see the problem, but we see the solution in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Without Christ, you know what we'd be doing? We'd still be at that rock. We'd, sp we'd still be appealing to Pan, to government, Caesar. We'd still be appealing. We'd be dancing with the goats, hoping to find pleasure and power over death. Hopeless. And Jesus comes and says, no. Peter, based upon that profession of your faith, that confession of faith, your trust in me as Messiah 
And Lord, that is going to be the rock. That is going to be where I build my church. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against that. Now let me give you the last two points very quickly. In verse 15, we see the kind of people we need to be. We need to be a people of confession. We need to be a people who will be willing to do what Peter did. And if we're not willing, our culture is gonna still worship at the rock of God's. But to, to live on mission is to stand in our culture, live in our culture, talk to folks and just say, listen, I believe Jesus is the son of God. He's the Messiah. We're people of that confession. We're people of that faith. That's where he builds his rock. First Peter chapter two, all of us are little stones that are placed into this temple. As you come to him, it says in verse four, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a what? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We're a saved people when we make that confession in Christ. But then he says, he says this in verse 19. Now watch this. In verse 19, he says, confession is just the beginning you got to turn your confession into a mission. Look what he says in verse 19. I'm going to give you some keys. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, 19. He gives us the keys. Now, this is, this is uh, an interesting statement. The keys could really refer to a couple of things. There were, in in the Old Testament, we see Eliakim who was given the keys to the temple. And he was allowed to to control the temple courtyard and all that happened there. And I guess, uh, uh, in a sense, Peter unlocks the door through that statement of faith. And you and I, you and I as believers have the opportunity to open the door for people to enter into the kingdom of God. We get to open the door through the preaching and teaching of the gospel. But this was also a phrase that was connected to teachers, the scribes that were in the temple. And he says, you, you apostles are going to be teachers. And then he, he transfers it to us. You who have the apostles teaching, you have the keys. You take the apostolic teaching to the world and you help open the door for people to walk into the kingdom. He says, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail but you have the keys. I've won them from you. I dove in there, conquered death, came out. I've got the keys. All of those other temples, no keys. I've got the keys. Now I'm handing it to you through the gospel. Take the gospel. Take the gospel to the world.
Some things are hard to get into, like UF. Now that I know the president, maybe I can send my application in and he can do a little work, help me get some classes. Um, You know, the president probably has some sway there. He might could work a deal and call the registrar and say, you know, Chauncey just doesn't quite make the grade. His SATs aren't quite good enough, his grades, but I'm I'm gonna stand in for him. And I want to vouch for him, let him in. Our president, the Lord Jesus, it's what he's saying, I, I got the keys. Nobody can get into heaven because nobody's good enough. Nobody can make the SAT, the ACT, or the GPA to get into heaven. It's a perfect sinless score. But the president became flesh and dwelt among us. I loved that uh, uh, the president and his wife stayed a week in the dorm. I said, you know, that's that's what Jesus did for us. God came, spent 33 years incarnate. He came and demonstrated to us the glory and the grace of God. And then he went and did something that none of us could have done. He went and he took my place on the cross. He defeated, disarmed death, won the keys. And I will go in, not on my GPA, but I will go in because of what Christ has done. He's my rock, is he your rock? He's my rock. Now, what are we going to do with it? Poor Peter. Peter, got, he, just, he just got done making an A on his first test, right? A plus. You answered my question correctly. Jesus said, all right, the way I'm going to overcome death is I'm going to go and I'm going to die. And Peter raised his hand and <laughs> said, all right, come here. No, you're not. And, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're my adversary. You're now, now, you're now no longer thinking with the right mind. You're thinking like the folks in the courtyard down there. You're thinking from an earthly perspective. You've got to think from a heavenly perspective. The way we're going to build this church is we're going to have a, a savior who dies and gives his life and resurrects. And then he says, now, Peter, you're not going to like the path I'm going to ask you to go on either. You need to be a people of confession. But if you've got the right confession, I'm calling you to a mission. Do you know what he said? Just a few verses below, and it's all connected. He says, there's a path we must take. There's a path we must take. Verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him, do you know what it says? Deny himself, take up his cross, 
and follow me. You just went down into that. You just, you just died. Take up your cross and follow me and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Take up your cross and go all in. I got two questions I want to ask you as we close. Here's the first one. What's your confession? Who do you say Jesus is? I'm going to do a whole series on questions, but no other question is this important. Who do you say Jesus is this morning? That's the test, really. Have you placed your faith like Peter had? Placed your faith, and maybe you don't understand it all perfectly. Peter didn't. But you just look at Jesus and you say, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Is that your confession this morning? If it's not, we're gonna sing a song here in a minute, just a time of prayer, a time of response. We'll have counselors up here and others that can just help you pray that prayer of confession. Or you can come see me right after the service. But here's the question I want for you, Westside. Here's the question. What's your mission? Does your mission match your confession? Does your mission match? Does it line up with your confession? Have you denied yourself taking up your cross and followed him? Let's pray together. Father, those questions are what we need to walk away with and we need to think about. And now, Lord Jesus, as we, we worship in song, it's just a time to pray. It's a time to reflect. It's a time to respond. God, there's so much need. The problem is gigantic. But Lord Jesus, you conquered death, you covered our sin, and you sent us out. And you said you would build your church in a a Gentile pagan world. You can build your church in Gainesville. In the United States, you can build it in Saudi Arabia. You can build your church in Russia. You can build it in Rio de Janeiro. You will build your church. And you've called out a group of people to go. Help us be that people. May our mission match our confession. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's worship the Lord in song. I invite you to come and pray. This would be a great time to come and pray for our college students, to pray for one another. I want, our, I want our invitation time to be more prayerful. And so let's pray, let's worship. The altar's open. And uh, don't, don't fear coming. Let's pray that we'll be people of mission. You come.